0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. It's just the way it is. Progress is always good. These are the sentiments that many people feel about the way our society and culture is structured. Because it's how we've grown up and what we've experienced, we believe this is just the way it is. We view change as progress and think that anything different must be less than. But what if this isn't the type of society or life that enabled us humans to thrive? We evolved to this point, but is this really the best we can hope for? Welcome to the concept of the evolved Nest, the concept that how we lived for the majority of human history has been what enabled our success. And moving back to the key features of that history can help us thrive once again. This week I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Darsha Narvez, the creator of this concept and the associated nonprofit organization, to discuss what this involves and how we can all thrive. Isn't it time we get to the stage where we all feel whole again? I am so excited to have with me today Dr. Darsha Narvez. She's a professor of psychology, although now retired, at the University of Notre Dame. Her research explores questions of species-typical and species-atypical development in terms of well-being, morality, and sustainable wisdom. She examines how early life experience, the evolved nest, influences moral functioning and well-being in children and adults. She integrates evolutionary, anthropological, neurobiological, clinical, developmental, and education sciences in her work. Her 2014 book won the 2015 William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association and the 2017 Expanded Reason Award for research. She also writes a popular blog for Psychology Today called Moral Landscapes, and she hosts the webpage EvolveNest.org and is president of Kindred World, an online nonprofit that offers a vision, practices, and identity for sustainable humanity and planet. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's wonderful to be with you again, Tracy. It's been, uh, what, seven years we decided, it's, right? So- I know. <laughs> I
0: can't believe it. It's way too long, but it doesn't feel like that long. So much has been going on, eh? Right. Exactly. Well, we're going to talk a lot today about the Evolve Nest because I love what you've created with this. The I mean, It's so laid out. But before we get there, you you started as a researcher in moral psychology and then switched off to this evolved nest, which is quite similar. I think there's a relationship. But how did you become interested in moral psychology first and then shifting to these issues around the evolved nest?
1: Well, it's a long story. Uh, I spent half my childhood in, in Spanish-speaking countries outside the USA, and I uh, was always shocked to see kids my age on a street corner in rags selling gum for dinner, you know, money for dinner and uh, and then coming back to the states and seeing all the materialism and overabundance and waste. And so I puzzled from a young age about the ethics of the world, uh, what was wrong. <laughs> and so but my careers have been many. I had a lot of interest too. so I, um, was became accidentally a music major in college pipe organ and so then I was a church organist and choir director and then I went to the Philippines and taught music k-12 there at an international school I also in Minnesota was teaching music and then in went to seminary because I had questions the big questions are often in theology they're addressed more openly and then uh had my own business I started as well, teaching Spanish to adults using super learning and did that for a number of years, which overlapped with my uh, work in the Hispanic community, Minnesota Migrant Council uh, and other Hispanic organizations. And then I was invited to teach at a middle school, prep school in Spanish. So I did that for a few years. In the middle of that, I found moral development research And that was like struck a chord, a deep chord in me to work on that uh, in graduate school. So I got my Ph.D. working on moral development issues. And then over time, uh, the focus at that time, which is now 30 years ago, uh, was on moral reasoning and moral judgment as being the center of human morality Uh, which is kind of a narrow recent perspective from the Western world. Uh, And I realized over time that that I've discovered uh, Alan Shore, his work on neurobiological development in early life and the attachment process. I discovered James Prescott looking at peaceful, peaceful societies, showing that at least two and a half years of breastfeeding and pretty constant touch were related to most peaceful societies and uh, discovered Yakpengsept on effective neuroscience and discovered the book Hunter-Gatherer Childhoods, which summarized the characteristics of uh, small band hunter-gatherers around the world, what are common to all of them in terms of child raising. And all that made me realize that morality (laughs) and moral development is actually very embodied and uh, neurobiologically engraved on the child from a young age. And so we need to attend to early life in how we become or how we raise a human being.
0: That is, I mean, I first have to say, I had no idea you had so many careers ahead of time that that was, and such a varied, I mean, going to the seminary, how that feel. And it's funny that that was not your pathway to morality directly. Cause as you said, normally we would think that, you know, that's where the big questions, the issue of morality and development really do get intricately intertwined with religion but I I have to admit I agree with you I think it's far more related to parenting and our upbringing and how we evolve there but we'll get to that but that is really fascinating thank you um so as we talk about the evolved nest today because that is really your I, I guess it's interesting because it does tie right into morality of this early upbringing leading us up to the type of people we might, Hope to be or think we want to be and it is crucial to understanding our history and how our culture shifted. But starting here, I want to go back to well back to or up to our current culture without looking back is what we're in right now, because for so many people, this is their baseline. This is what they think of as normal. And you've used the term competitive detachment to kind of describe the types of cultures that many of us in weird societies are living in. Can you tell us what you mean by this and what does that look like? What are we looking for when we think about competitive detachment?
1: So it's emotional detachment, relational detachment, and then a competition uh, between everybody for getting what they need because it uh, the cycle of competitive detachment doesn't provide for basic needs of for anybody, really. And so the, the, the term cycle of competitive detachment is... Uh, referring to the slippage in our baselines about what we think is normal for human culture, for human behavior. And it's illustrated, really, in a couple of scientists' uh, terms and quotes. So Ian Sutti called the United States culture uh, one that has a taboo on tenderness. And he, he uh, documented that over from the beginning, I believe, of the United States. Dan Stern put it this way. He, he summed up uh, the reaction that people have to babies' needs. Why should an infant make such demands? Why can't he be satisfied with less care and attention? How can we arrange things so that parents have an easier time? And that's really uh, fundamental to the approach, the parenting culture, the dominant parenting culture in the United States. Uh, it's a, set up to be a competition between parents' needs and children's needs none of which get met, actually. And there's also a deep misunderstanding of child development. Children are born if at full-term birth. Most babies aren't allowed to stay in the womb and decide on their own birthday now. Uh, and they vary uh, normally by 55 days how long they stay in the womb if they have a choice. Uh, but we pull them out early. so. Uh, Anyway, at full-term birth, uh, the baby only has 25% of the adult brain volume uh, developed. And so much has to develop in those first five years, six years. And uh, we also look like or resemble fetuses of other animals until about 18 months of age. And so we need what Ashley Montague, the uh, social anthropologist, called an external womb experience the womb with a view. And our culture doesn't provide any of that. Assumes that babies are just, you know, born this way. Their genes are in control. Their personality, not much you can do about it. Just, you know, survive those years when babies are so clingy and needy and all that. So that's the beginning. We undercare for our young children. That leads then to uh, neurobiological structures that are less than optimal lots of dysregulation at multiple levels, physiologically, immune system, the vagus nerve, critical for all major systems of the body, uh, oxytocin system, underdeveloped, emotion systems, emotional regulation, uh, behavior regulation, all sorts of different ways we dysregulate people because we're not providing what what I call the evolved nest. And then these children turn into adults who are pretty self-centered because when you don't feel well, when things aren't regulated uh in their normal optimal way for our species you're necessarily self-centered because that's what the energy does your blood flow shifts to you know mobilizing for self protection and so we have a lot of adults with ill being rather than well-being not a lot of adult wisdom and know-how for getting along with uh, other people who are different or for getting along well on the earth and then these people, these adults, create a culture. Then that keeps this cycle of downward, degrading, disconnected, detachment going. And that's what we, unfortunately, have, uh, to the nth degree in the United States right now.
0: It's you've cu- touched on so much that I, I want to ask about here. But I think about uh, studies term the taboo on tenderness, and it is something that. I know I've experienced so much of. And there's almost also, I want to add to it, Nars, a gender or sex gap on it. Because I know, you know, my daughter, both of my kids, I have a boy and a girl, very snugly, very cuddly, very much want, you know, we still co-sleep, everything like that. It goes on. And it was accepted far more for my daughter than it was with my son. There's a look at him as if somehow he's five and a half. He loves his snuggles. He still co-sleeps. He hugs. We are incredibly affectionate. And you start to see our culture look down on it as if it's somehow bad, even though if my daughter comes up for a snuggle, oh, isn't that lovely? You still got that relationship with her. And is that part of this, this kind of competitiveness within the this sex distinction?
1: Yes, and we know that boys need more of the evolved nest. They need more cuddles, they need more play, they need more breast milk uh, than girls because they have less built-in resilience in their brains and bodies and uh, because of the girls have double X chromosome. And boys take longer to mature. So they need more of this and we give less, right? Because of the toxic masculinity in our culture.
0: Yeah, it's such, I I don't know how we get people to realize, like, I've heard, I've heard that before, boys need more, and you try and explain it. And there's such resistance to that idea that boys need more. And I don't know how we get across that they do. And it's hugely important to their long term well being. Because even families that are gentle and and care. It's like, that's a block, I think, because it's so ingrained in our culture that you're supposed to make them tough somehow. And that resiliency has to come about through this struggle. Uh, and I don't think that's really the case, but it's, um, it's there. And going on that, I remember when we spoke last time, and I think I want to touch on it again, this brain development in how we interact with kids, because you mentioned they need this kind of external womb, everything for, you know, the five years, almost, right, we're looking at this development over time. And in our culture, you know, by the time kids are one or two, they're in daycare programs that are pushing reading or writing. You, know, you enter preschool at three and you're expected to know your letters and your numbers. And we have a really big focus on academics, I guess, for lack of a better word. I'm not even sure it's academics because I'm sure, you know, reading is is a lovely skill. Reading books is wonderful, stories, but I also know literacy is not something that has been a part of our long human history, right? Reading is still relatively new. Uh, math, similarly, what is it that the brain needs at that point? Because we had talked a bit about this left brain, right development. What is going on in that early time that our kids need that they're missing out on with the way that we've structured our culture.
1: Well, Alan Shore has documented this uh, extensively, the importance of uh, early relational uh, orientation, which is a right hemisphere um, enhanced time in those early years, the right hemisphere grows more rapidly than the left. Right hemisphere is all about relationships, connection, energy, uh, openness, empathy, and if you don't provide what we call the evolved nest during those early years then you're undermining the development of the right hemisphere and then you end up with people who have sort of an empty soul Uh, their heart centered relational capacities thousands of little mini skills there uh, that babies develop if they're well cared for a lot of that doesn't get developed and you send these kids to school or you start teaching them reading you're shifting them over to the left hemisphere you don't want to do that because the right hemisphere is the one collecting all sorts of experiences from immersed, uh, embodied uh, life uh, experiences and collecting those things. Then the left hemisphere is the one that uh, accesses those and draws some generalizations from it and checks again in a good, well-functioning brain whether that's accurate with the, all the intuitive uh, awareness from embodied experience that person has had. If you don't let children have those embodied experiences, especially outdoors with lots of different entities and with lots of different people in early life so that they learn to tune to different ways of being, different relational kind of connections. If you don't allow children to do that, they've got an empty, almost empty right hemisphere. And they they go with their gut then. And the gut is always about self-safety. Those are survival systems uh, in the brain that we are born with. And they get enhanced when you leave babies in distress. And then they're empty because they don't trust themselves. They don't build their intuition. Their their hearts, in a way, are empty. And then you tr- go send them to school, and they're, you're told, they're told to don't think, feel. Don't think about that bird outside the window. Don't feel your emotions. Just learn this material and take a test and pass, and then you'll be a good person, right? But that's left hemisphere. And now we have all these adults who have empty holes in their in their souls psyches because they were under cared for underdeveloped and then they shift between the gut feeling of not feeling safe because they're not very flexible or attuned because they didn't learn all that or this intellectual detachment emotional detachment and self-detachment you know and learning uh, kind of memorizing things certain beliefs you know as if that you know is the way to be a good person so we got a lot of Robopaths is one of the terms for it uh they're just unautomatic. they have uh, little uh, awareness of what's going on they've got to get back in touch with their hearts and that heart-mindedness is what virtually every society through the course of human experience has emphasized as being central to being a human being
0: it's you make me want to cry thinking about all of that but it reminds me of you know a lot of when i Talk to families one on one, one of the biggest struggles is that notion of being triggered by something. And it's, um, you know, you mentioned, we have adults that grow up to be self centered. And I usually use the term self focused, just because I think there's such a negative connotation with self centered as if you're intentionally doing it. Whereas I find self focused, is more of a biological, your body has to turn inward, when you're dysregulated, that's The most urgent thing is to get yourself back regulated so you focus on it. And I think triggering, when we experience something with our kids that triggers us, is that epitome of becoming self-focused. We see something, we don't know how to respond to it. And I contrast it with, you know, at least the anecdotal or anthropological assessments of other cultures that see parents not seemingly as triggered. By their kids outbursts or struggles and I think it just highlights exactly what you're talking about this disconnect between being able to stay calm and grounded because a child having a tantrum is a child that's struggling and we don't need to take it personally we don't need to lose our minds or anything like that and um yeah, so it's interesting. It is sad to think that that's where we're at, but I see that in parents all the time. And I think it's important for us to realize that I think that triggering, am I, am I right in saying that that triggering is probably this type of self-focused behavior that we see?
1: Yes, and the triggering is coming from their own pre-verbal experiences of being neglected or feeling abandoned and despairing, right? Mm-hmm. And then that, or angry from being unjustly treated as a baby. And then, yeah, that anything could, uh, all sorts of things can uh, make you react, stress reactive, threat reactive, change the brain, the blood flow in your body it makes it harder to think because the blood flow moves away from your higher order thinking in those situations. And then parents get caught in this cycle with their kids of, you know, escalating their, their reactions to one another instead of uh, finding the calmness that all children need to experience and grow into.
0: Exactly. So let's compare this thing, because I think we've got a pretty good idea on what's all wrong with our culture, as many would know. But you compare this to what you call the cooperative companionship model of the past. And I think it's fair to say of some cultures still today that are out there. Can you tell us a bit about this model and what it would look like?
1: Yes. The first model that we talked about, the disconnected competitive detachment culture or cycle is rare, and it's a recent thing. It comes about from uh, civilizations, hierarchical civilizations, and any kind of hierarchical societal organization is going to move in that direction. The cycle of cooperative companionship, in contrast, is what our species spent its time in. 95 to 99% of its existence has been in these small band hunter-gatherer communities. These are foraging communities and uh, they still exist around the world, and that's uh, reflective then of what the evolved nest provides, which we'll talk about. But what happens when the evolved nest is provided is that you develop self-regulation, other regulation, a deep sense of empathy with others, a sense of um, at-homeness on the earth, because the natural world is part of that nest, and you are encouraged in really held in a holding environment that's a term that psychoanalysts use the holding environment uh, supports you throughout your life you never feel abandoned you never feel disconnected because of the way these nested communities are structured everybody's basic needs are met and it's um pleasant and pleasurable so when those babies' needs are met with the evolvedness, they develop the proper healthy functioning psychosocial neurobiology, so many layers of that. And then they become adults that are well and and thrive and are turn out to be wise. And then those adults create the culture that maintains the system. They meet basic needs. And you feel then always like you're part of the whole, uh, which is very much a right brain thing.
0: It's you said that holding environment, it reminds me of the more common term, I guess, today of that holding space for things that when our kids become, you know, acting out that whole notion of being able to be the bucket that holds the space for them, that you are that safe space for them to release into. And it just seems to speak to exactly what you said. There's this moment where you can be at your worst and someone's just out there going, I've got you. I am I, holding you. That's okay. I've got your space. You can do all this. It's not going to escalate. It's not going to trigger me to become self-focused and then go back and forth. And so I do wonder with that, how much do you think people can, who have had this upbringing in our culture that was not supportive that are triggering, how much can they learn this other kind of, at least this holding space part of it. Is it something we can move beyond in our adult life, even if we weren't raised with it?
1: Yes. So the right hemisphere can be grown at any time in life, based on being immersed in a social space, uh, where and I always encourage people to play with the young child, because the young child will just, you know, be all enthusiastic and, and play chase or wrestle with you or whatever that is, you have to be in the moment or the playmate stops playing with you. And that's growing the right hemisphere. So it's growing more self-regulation. It's growing more empathy. It's growing more uh, self-control for aggression. And it it builds the the capacity for higher consciousness to feel at one with everything, with all. So uh, social play uh, in my classes, I would use a three um, triune kind of wave of supporting growth and development because virtually every student of mine didn't have the evolved nest in some way or another so first you have to learn self-calming in order to be able to be with others right if you're very socially anxious or you know can't really uh, stand too much intimacy that means the vagus nerve needs some uh, work and the vagus nerve can be developed with various techniques like belly breathing so that's what we learned um humming and singing and what we did for the social joy aspect, which is part of moving to a broader uh, way of being regulated and, and being cooperative, is uh, s- folks on games. So I was a music uh, teacher, you know, so I, we played games that are like Farmer in the Dell, although not that one, that's not so great. There are a lot of better games and we would play this with college students. They would, we would all learn these games and then we go hang out with kindergartners and teach them the games and play with them. And it was just amazing, you know, the students couldn't believe how fun it was to be in the moment with these kindergartners. And so those things are important. Then also the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, and I think uh, we're talking about that today, also trigger uh, reactions. So if if you grew up in a family that told you that green people are scary and dangerous, uh, then when you see a green person, you're gonna go, ah, and you're going to go into your self-protective mode. You're bracing against that person because your story has told you that, which links to then your gut uh, enhanced gut reaction of being afraid, which is what happens when you undercare for kids. They're going to more easily get scared and go into that mode of bracing against the other. And so uh, it's important what kind of stories we tell and what we, what stories we uh, allow our kids to hear.
0: That's, I love the idea of the games. I always, I was a babysitter for years, and it was always such a joy to take that break and go in and just go hang out with a bunch of little kids for an evening and play all the things I wouldn't do all the time. And it really is, I think we forget how fun it can be to just kind of let loose like that. So I love that actually that's part of a university course, which is awesome. <laughs> so, okay. Cause we've talked about the evolved nest now. I think it's time we get into it because otherwise people are going to be confused. So you have nine elements in it. And I want to go over one by one, just to talk about each of these as to why they're important and what they offer us for our upbringing, because I think it's important. We, we understand how we can meet these uh, as much as possible. So The very first one is the soothing perinatal
1: experiences. And that refers to a relaxed gestational experience for the child. It means a soothing birth, not uh, intrusive or controlling or uh, traumatizing. And then the postnatal period of connection to mother in particular, but also others uh, depending on the baby. Uh, But what we have in the medicalized way of Uh, Bringing babies into the world pretty much violates all of that, and we have mothers who are highly stressed during pregnancy, which is linked to having a baby who's going to be irritable. Many other things.
0: And with this I just want to clarify because it seems like even in our past there would be elements that would kind of bring this out of our control. So you think about a famine or you know a war or anything like that that goes on. So is this one that is more modifiable than others in terms of the overall evolveness? Like I don't want people panicking that oh I was stressed in pregnancy because this happened. You know, I, is it one of those ones that the other parts can kind of counteract relative to what happened at this
1: time? Yes, Uh, so we are, our brains are plastic and epigenetics is an ongoing factor in our lives. So epigenetics means turning genes on or off, uh, speaking colloquially. Uh, And so we have the opportunity to alter how our genes work as we age but it gets harder and harder. Plasticity diminishes more and more with age. So I always urge the playing. Playing is a way to heal in so many ways and to reset how your genes are working and um, to move you in the direction of connectedness.
0: Perfect. Okay. So number two is, I love how you put it on request. Breastfeeding. And I just want to say right off the bat, I am going to use that from now on because I know it's always been on demand. And I think that does cause people to think of it as our children are demanding something from us and we're somehow have to provide it and they're becoming little tyrants. And so I've always struggled with that term. So on request, breastfeeding just sounds so much nicer. So thank you for that right off the bat. But (laughs) what is the timeline? What does this look like in the Evolve Nest?
1: So our, uh, our ancestral context, these are foraging communities, small band hunter-gatherers. 99% of our history is spent in those societies. And let me just say, the evolved nest is actually 75 million years old because it came out with the social mammals when they emerged. So many of these characteristics have been around for that long. Uh, every species has its own unique variation. Uh, breastfeeding for our species uh, is uh, frequent. lengthy frequent because our milk is thin and unlike a predator's milk which is thick which allows the mom to go off and hunt uh, and then come back later but ours is thin which means that it needs to be ingested frequently it's got all the building blocks the brain the brain needs the immune system needs to develop in a healthy way and our uh, average age of weaning which blows everyone's mind get ready for our ancestral context is four years of breastfeeding. Now, it's been observed from two to eight in these small band hunter-gatherer communities, two years to eight years, but on average, four years of weaning time. Uh, and that, of course, it's because it builds intelligence, myelinization uh, is, uh, occurs it more with breastfeeding, for example, and with formula use, and that's linked to intelligence and speed of the brain function, Uh, the breast milk, the mother's breasts are a science laboratory. They are actually uh, creating the right kind of milk for that child, boy milk, girl milk, Uh, infectious agent in the area, antibody for that. And so it's just this amazing elixir uh, filled with marvelous ingredients, right?
0: And just to add to that, because I want to address that there are people who don't want to breastfeed, who, especially in our culture, struggle to breastfeed. I mean, I just spoke, had Amy Brown on who talked about grief and trauma around breastfeeding when it doesn't work out because we lack so much support and, you know, information about it to help families along who want to do this in this Obviously, we know there are always sometimes people who can't breastfeed or don't. And I had Dr. Anshley Palmquist on to talk about maternal nursing. So that would be a part of this, that we're not talking about, you know, you must do it yourself if you can't, you're a failure. But there were support systems in place in other cultures as well, correct?
1: In our ancestral context, the, the whole community might suckle the child. <laughs> if the mother wasn't there right away or was busy, then someone else could breastfeed them who, who had breast milk or even a, a man could let them suckle at the nipple of the man who's not doesn't have breast milk, but it comforts the child. It's also important to know that our jaws, not only the head skull uh, is shaped and closes after about 18 months because it's expecting a large brain to grow after birth uh, from breast milk from touch and all these other things, but also the jaw. So we're finding uh, an interdisciplinary set of researchers finding that 300 years ago uh, and longer ago, our skulls were different, our jaws were different. Now they're very narrow. The palates are narrow, too many crowded teeth, and people have all sorts of sleep problems as a result. And they figured out that it must have been the fact that when women went into textile factories, they stopped breastfeeding as long. And breastfeeding itself actually shapes the jaw properly. And now we've got bottle feeding instead, and that doesn't help the jaw. So there's more to look at in that uh, research.
0: I remember reading that. That's the myofunctional therapy to try and help the orofacial development that has gone with the shift in how we have, Our, our culture at least, has evolved, which is fascinating. As someone who had to have A bazillion teeth out as a kid because my jaw was too small. I I see the effects, even though I will say I was breastfed till on on request rather than till I, I weaned sometime after three. So it wasn't you know exactly that didn't do it quite for me. But obviously, I always highlight to people that research is not causal one on one. But also, there's a history of if you go back, say my family history was a lot of bottle feeding going back for generations. The way I'm going to be born is going to be perhaps with a smaller jaw to begin with, and that breastfeeding may have at least maximized what my jaw could do at that point. So I think that's always important to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, you could have lost more teeth. huh? I, I know. Trust me, I didn't enjoy
0: it. The amount they pulled. I was in the dentist more than I was out of it. So it's there. And just to get on this, because to highlight the breastfeeding versus the on request. So there are going to be people who bottle feed. We are in a culture that is not supportive of breastfeeding or even maternal nursing. And there may be people whose choice is they're looking at it. There's myriad reasons. But that on-request business, does that have its own benefit to kids? Because we talk about paste bottle feeding or on-request bottle feeding as opposed to scheduled. Does that add its own layer to the Evolve Nest on top of the breastfeeding?
1: Yes, it does. It's really important in early life for the child to feel like their needs are being met when needed. And uh, the signaling. Uh, the suckling is always a comfort, even if the child isn't hungry, but they're, you know, getting restless. In our ancestral context, they would put the child to someone's breast to calm them down. In those first months, they're still trying to figure out how to live outside the womb. It's really hard to learn how to breathe differently, how to digest, how to move around in a body that's kind of out there now in space instead of surrounded in the womb by a warm <laughs> placental uh, liquid. So the on on request uh, has to do with building trust in that child, but it's also because our milk is so thin, the child needs a lot more of it. People can't believe it. Right. um, But, you know, the size of the the, uh, baby's tummy at full term birth is about the size of a quarter and that empties very quickly. And the body's moving and the brain is building itself and growing so quickly, you need to keep washing it with the right biochemicals, which breast milk provides. And so, this is to empower the baby. The baby should be empowered to choose their own birthday, wherever that is. The doctors are guessing. Babies vary by 55 days in the womb, so they need to have their choice of birthday, they need to be able to choose when. how much to feed so bottle feeding doesn't give them a choice about how much often it just pours down their throat uh, and the the adults decide well they should have this much well there is a link uh, apparently from uh, at least formula bottle feeding to obesity and that could be part of the link besides formula being pretty non-human and having hardly any ingredients in it Uh, so formulas are good for emergencies but Breast milk is going to be the thing that builds the healthy person. And we should have systems like milk banks and wet nurses in every hospital to help mothers and lactation consultants and all to make it much more feasible for every mother. That makes sense.
0: I see that. And and
1: I think it's fair
0: to add that I do know that formula has shifted recently it is and there is something called paste bottle feeding so if you are bottle feeding either breast milk or formula because i think it's a problem with both of those with the bottle as you said just giving a certain amount and deciding that's how much a baby needs i urge you to look up paste bottle feeding because there's a way in which you can do this to meet that on request need of as you said it's not just on request as to when but how much? And that's a really important piece of the puzzle that's been ignored for so long when we switch to a, frankly, a more bottle feeding culture, is that it put adults in control.
1: Right. One other thing, too, is that breast milk provides energizing ingredients in the morning and sleep inducing ingredients in the evening. So you don't want to mix up your bottles <laughs> yes. because you may be getting a very energized child at bedtime because you gave them morning milk. I've had that conversation with many
0: families and most people don't know that. And it's very surprised. They get very surprised by it because I think, you know, especially in the US, it's a pumping culture with breastfeeding as opposed to breastfeeding at the breast because, well, we won't even get into your abysmal maternity leave um, or parental leave for anyone because it's infuriating, but that does change the nature of on-request breastfeeding. And there's so many layers to it now that you can be breastfeeding, but bottle feeding, and therefore that paste bottle feeding becomes really important. Or if you're using formula, again, the paste bottle feeding is more important, but we also need more milk banks and maternal nursing and all of that there. Um, Okay. So number three is positive touch, which is pretty, I think, explanatory, but tell us what you mean by that positive touch.
1: That's pretty much 24-7, carrying the child in arms or on back. The kind of motion of of walking is what the baby's body needs for digestion, for brain development. So pushing a child in a stroller is not the same thing. And actually, you know, is again, minimizing the needs of babies because they that at least may calm them down a little bit, but it's still not providing what they get from being in arms. And that means anybody's arms, as long as they feel trust towards the person that's holding them, uh, which uh, that means they, they learn to trust responsive caregivers, but maybe not so much the ones who aren't so responsive. So they'll protest being in the arms of that person. But positive touch is linked to uh, good sleep cycles and, and growth in all sorts of ways and uh, to preventing depression and growing uh, good memory systems. It's linked to vagus nerve functioning Uh, which is the 10th cranial nerve that links to all the major systems of the body. And when it doesn't function well, you can have seizures, you can have heart problems, breathing problems, gut problems, immune system problems. So you wanna have lots of good touch with the child and a rocking, moving touch and no negative touch. Negative touch, meaning slapping, pinching, spanking, is, is now we have longitudinal data showing it harms children it's more like physical or sexual abuse, uh, even that kind of uh, negative, bad touch.
0: I remember reading a study once that suggested in the United States, by the age of one, babies were only being touched around 10 to 20% of the time compared to much older. And it broke my heart. This was years ago, and I, it, in comparison to... I think about my own children at one and they were more mobile. So they, of course, were moving around and crawling around and exploring some. But I would have guessed that we were still touching, especially because we co-sleep. So there was that touch throughout the nighttime that gives us, you know, 40 percent of the time there are really like probably 70 percent of the time we were still in arms and the rest was there Led exploratory behavior or perhaps the occasional shower but that was kind of what seemed normal to me and I thought about what that would look like if you think about a day at say 20% even that just seems really small for that amount of touch for that young an age
1: yeah, it's really important uh, because their energy system uh, we are all bodies of energy, right? And you need the touch to ground yourself. They need to be on the earth to ground themselves. They need to be in arms to ground themselves. and and when we put them in carriers or strollers, playpens or cribs, we are denying them what their body really needs.
0: I also like I had never thought about the digestive issue, but I think about, Feeding now. And of course, what do we tell adults to do? Go for a walk after eating. It helps your digestion, help gets things going. And it's that movement. And of course, although young babies can't walk, yes, they get that same bouncy motion that goes when they're in a carrier attached to us and i I just had never thought about that link to the gut before but that is really fascinating that that is part of the benefits of having them on us is that gi development
1: and one other thing about uh, breast milk and touch uh, it's really important after feeding whatever they have they need to stay upright just like we do or else you can get the acid reflux and that'll cause a lot of pain and gas and all that, right? So they need to be upright when they're being carried, not lying down and not yeah. putting, not feeding them and then lying them down. That's gonna cause all sorts of issues.
0: Although I'm gonna add to that, that trying to breastfeed to sleep without going back down gets a bit hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That is the one time, Cause, but I also wonder how much my kids were feeding to sleep versus suckling to sleep, so to speak, because I know there's the distinction. And of course, I have no idea how much milk they were getting out at any time. So it was always harder, but they did always feed to sleep for years and years, not just six months, but, you know, try going for five years. And that was just part of the routine of touch before bedtime. So it's there as well. Now, the next one I'm curious about, positive climate.
1: What are you referring to there? That means a welcoming, uh, open-hearted community climate for that child and mother. So the mother feels supported, has other people meeting her basic needs. So after the baby's born, the tradition is to have at least a month of lying in, right, where she's waited on and the baby is... Taken care of by multiple people, and and their relationship between mom and baby, the bonding is supported, and because the mom doesn't have to worry about anything else, just be there with the baby. Uh, so positive climate is the the welcomingness of it from the community, but also the the child feeling like they are uh, adding to the community. So over time, this uh, then means that the child learns how to make other people feel happy. The uh, in our traditional ancestral context. Everyone loved to have babies. Uh, They tried to make them laugh and to, it was just a center of the community enjoyment. And the baby then learns also to enhance everyone else. And that's, you know, a communal way of, um, of having a positive supportive experience.
0: And that's something that is very clearly gone. For our, us today. So when we think about the evolved Nest in today's context, that seems like something that families don't necessarily have control over with that. So what is it in the family context that can be done that might be able to help kids feel that way?
1: Well, I think uh, keeping the baby in in the middle of all the family's activities, not isolating them, not putting them off to the side while you go do something, keeping them with you. And keeping them just on the hip or uh, in a carrier uh, somehow uh, and passed around uh, to the family members, community members, so that the baby's always with you. Uh, uh, That's companionship. Yeah.
0: I remember reading about, I can't remember which hunter-gatherer society it was, and I apologize for that. But they had a great practice in the evening around the fire of a new baby would just go around the circle. One by one to have a positive engagement briefly, but just with every single person and then back to mom and I thought what a great way to build up that sense of very brief so you're not taxing that separation system, but also this positive emotional engagement with everyone repeated daily, going on to in order to build up that sense of safety and valued and and everything that I think our kids do need, because when they leave the home, certainly our society does not value children at all, they are seen as a burden to be fixed until they're able to contribute. And so I think it really is an area that we need to step up on as best as we can for ourselves. And I would say, if you're listening for people who have babies, be that person that comes in, smiles at the baby, makes them feel welcome, be that person outside the parents who can serve as their positive climate.
1: Right. And I should say that the Evolve Nest, all the components, save perhaps breastfeeding and birth, are for the whole community throughout the lifespan. So we all need the positive climate. We all need to have positive touch. We all need to be feeling like we have companions, that our our community, our family, our community are are supportive of who we are so we can be our real, true selves. That
0: makes so much sense. We could all use that far more. So the next one is self-directed social play. And at what age are you thinking of
1: this? Oh, babies are ready to play from birth. It's just uh, uh, different. Every age is a little bit different because they don't have that many capacities, but they can make noises. So Colin Trevarthen of the University of Edinburgh uh, it has a video where he shows this newborn baby in the arms of his father, and the they start to grunt back and forth to each other. Uh, you know, the baby goes hmm, and the father hmm, hmm, mm. and then the father pauses, distracted for a moment, and then the baby goes hmm, hmm, <laughs> hey, <laughs> and that's playing already. Right. So the play is, you know, going to be peekaboo with babies and it's going to be, uh, you know, a little sneaking up and making them laugh somehow. And then when they're older, toddlers need to be, you know, uh, spun around. And there's a great book called The Art of Roughhousing that helps parents learn how to do that if they didn't get it themselves. And throughout life in our ancestral context, everyone was playing in some fashion. A lot of banter for among the adults, uh, but there's lots of dancing and singing as well. That makes sense.
0: And, you know, with the social play as kids get older, I think one of the struggles we have is both isolating children because they're in more learning environments that don't focus on that kind of social play. So if you're in a preschool, you're not getting not always a lot of social play there, but also at least what I've seen with my kids, how much better social play is when they have a multi-age group setting because they learn so much from older kids, and there's almost a a way in which they learn how to play, if that makes sense.
1: Right, and that is our heritage, uh, mixed age play groups, uh, because the older like to uh, guide the younger, and the younger love to follow uh, what the elders, elders are doing. And so our ancestral context is really a layered, nested, every age, a layer of nestedness of elders and mentors, uh, which brings us to mothers, which is the next
0: the one. Next exactly. I was about to say, you're jumping right in there. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And that refers to other mothers or other nurturers. In our ancestral context, there weren't too many siblings around because there, uh, there was a high child mortality rate before age 15, which was common for us too until about 150 years ago. Uh, with medicine, emergency medicine coming into play, uh, and so there weren't that many siblings around, but there were other other cousins and uh, non-kin. Uh, these groups are based of kin and non-kin. These foragers, and uh, so the the layers of support are just you know people who are slightly older, older than you would be supporting you, and and you'd be modeling they'd be modeling things and you'd be imitating, and uh, so alloparents are that kind of nestedness for every age group that helps you feel like you are part of the community and you have someone to look up to, someone to help uh, who's younger than you as well. So it's this natural pedagogy that's part of our ancestral context.
0: Now, I have heard it said that our modern daycare can serve as an allo-parenting model. And I'm curious to hear your take on that.
1: Well, at EvolveNest.org, we have now a child care checklist for uh, determining whether a child care center is following the nest uh, enough or not and what to look for. It can be used also for uh, parents uh, outside of the center concern or for center leaders. And I'm afraid that in the United States, most of our daycare uh, centers are not providing the nested care because we don't pay workers enough. There aren't enough workers, especially for a baby. Baby should not be in a daycare center, but we force that on parents because they don't have maternal leave, family leave, paid family leave. So it's very disturbing because if a baby doesn't feel like they're known, uh, which, the resp- which is the next one, responsive relationships <laughs> is the next component, Responsive relationships means that the person knows you they know the pattern that that you uh, the information or the experiences you sh- shared in the last time that you were encountered and they know you and your favorite things right and the babies then need to be surrounded with people who know that about the baby so that they feel like uh, the world is trustworthy that I can be myself if they're uh, surrounded with strangers they don't. The baby signals don't get picked up properly, uh, and the baby just starts to shut down uh, and not grow properly. They'll just go into more of a stasis potentially. Or if they're left in distress, uh, they'll go into uh, the survival modes of panic and rage and fear and rage. So uh, and you don't want to enhance those. Those are the things that make you trigger <laughs> triggering uh, for you as an adult. So. Fallow parents and responsive relationships are really vital for providing that those layers of nested support that are going to lead to the optimal, normal development.
0: I, too, have a, a ebook that I did on finding daycare as to what to look for when you are going out. And my biggest thing for families that I always try to highlight is you have to be able to build that attachment before your child's in there for a long time that when places don't provide the opportunity for that gradual entry of getting to know someone them getting to know the baby it's not and i think covid's made it so much harder because nowadays you know parents aren't even allowed in the room to drop their kids off so there's not this time to respond in the safety of the arms of a parent to get to know someone else and this isn't just babies i i argue it's even you know a two three-year-old needs this time to experience new people from the safety of someone they do know and trust and when we allow that that's that can lead to that type of allo parenting even in a daycare center or structure whether it's a home daycare or not but without it I don't know how we we get there for people because it is there's this learning period that has to happen and if you can't allow your child to do that but I have had people who have had places that do it and they're always amazed at how wonderful it is cuz suddenly their kid is ready they trust someone they've built a relationship and when the parent then leaves kids happy they're good to go home and they don't see this kind of struggle that most parents believe is normal with that transition so i would say you know in our culture going back to this competitive detachment culture what i hear more often are kids that are screaming at drop off all the time very upset i Had parents be told that it's normal for kids to vomit because they're so upset at being dropped off. And I think that can't be normal. That cannot be what our children expect from this. I would expect a, oh, I know this person. This is good. Okay, thank you. I'm going to be with them for a while now. And then I, I trust you that I'll see you soon as well. So this has been built up as well that it's not a forever leaving. And then children can experience the benefits of those relationships outside of the home environment.
1: Right. And one one thing that can be done, and Bruce Perry talks about this in his new book yes. with Oprah, uh, What Happened to You, to try to establish a trusting relationship with a young child, you can just see them for five minutes, you know, and do something that doesn't scare them, and then see them a little while later for another five minutes. And, uh, you know, six to ten to twelve of those five minutes can then lead to trusting relationship with the adult. So I think we have to build in those kinds of things now when we, uh, and there are probably ways to do that, you know, observe through the window uh, or uh, have a phone call even now, if the child's older, etc.
0: Funny you say that. Cause actually one of the things I always talk about is these small moments of letting a child, especially younger children, dictate that comfort to and from someone to go to someone And have that person bring you back to your caregiver develops a sense of trust. Oh, I trust you. You're going to bring me back to mom. Okay. So it may only be two minutes at first that someone takes them. Oh, I see you're upset. Let me take you to mom and take you back. And the more they can build up that trust, the safer that relationship is. And therefore, you're able to be with them for longer periods of time there we go. I'm glad to hear. I haven't read that new book yet, but it's on my list. So I'm excited to get to it. Okay, so number eight here, which is one that I I love. And as I was telling you before we started here, but the nature connection, what do we need for that?
1: Well, our society is uh, disconnected from nature and has been that way for quite a long time. uh, In part because of Western philosophy telling us that nature is dead and dumb, you know, and that we're superior, we're separate from nature, all of which are false falsities uh, proven by science, (laughs) whether physics or biology, we're all connected, really. And so that feeling of connection is missing in many kids. Now, Richard Louvre talked about the nature deficit disorder, and came up with all sorts of uh, activities to do outside in nature, vitamin N is one of his books, for parents, and I, so nature connection is the sense of attachment to the natural world, which is part of our ancestral normal way of feeling and being, and it's also, though, a sense of responsibility and respect for the natural world. In our ancestral context, they had particular landscapes in which they uh, resided, and they grew their uh, unique cultural patterns based on their relationships with the natural world. So with this mountain, with this river, with these animals, these plants, Uh, and that's what we need in order to care for the earth properly. So this is all about saving our species as well as many others and not destroying the planet. Uh, You've got to have that sense of bonding with the natural world. And so whatever we can do, uh, putting babies outside in the grass and leaving them to just, Uh, perceive and feel the relationships there, uh, surrounded hopefully as wild as possible. And then uh, letting children build their own way of being and wandering through the natural world. So this is uh, to Earth, you know, to sit on the grass. Earth lowers your cholesterol. Uh, I'm sorry, not cholesterol, cortisol, (laughs) probably cholesterol. Uh, and then uh, sunning and um, hugging trees, all that stuff of feeling here and now with this uh, natural landscape. We have ecoattachment.dance where people can do 28 different things on 28 different days uh, to start to kind of break into that nature connection.
0: I love it because I admit we moved to the country and it's been the greatest thing. It's so much easier to feel connected when there's space. And it, well, it's just around us at all the times, so which makes it a lot easier too. But it is, I do find, you know, with cities, I think one of the things that always hit me was with so many people, it's almost overwhelming to feel connected to everything because it's almost like there's too much to be connected to. And it does make me think back to our history that. You know, a lot of, from what I've read, a lot of earlier societies will branch off if they get too big in order to maintain that ability to connect with everything because we can't feel connected to too much at once. And I do think that's part of the problem, but I'm not sure what the solution is.
1: When uh, COVID occurred in spring of 2020 and my students and I had to go online and they had to go home, uh, it was right at the point in the semester when we were supposed to be sitting outside the rest of the time, uh, twice a week, and do nature connection activities with kindergartners. Well, that wasn't possible anymore. So they had to then find ways to connect to nature. And We had a lot of ideas. They read vitamin N and other things. They had to figure out how to do nature connection and make a video for the kindergartners about what they discovered. Uh, and they found it, the students reported that it was actually quite helpful during the COVID <laughs> to have to do that. Even in, uh, if you were stuck in a uh, capital city in an apartment and you couldn't leave, there's a balcony, you know, there was a nest in the a, in a potted um, plants there. There were, you know, insects or you could grow seeds in your kitchen. There were different ways. They were quite creative on figuring out how to really feel again connected to the whole living earth
0: that's awesome you, if they're open to it you'd share those videos for everyone because i think lots of people could use those ideas because it is hard to think about when you're in a city and it just doesn't seem like nature is surrounding you all right the last one here is healing practices and I think many would argue that we must have those too. We have doctors, we have hospitals, we have everything else, but I get the feeling that's not what you're talking about.
1: No, I'm talking about everyday practices of mending your relationships, uh, the imbalance in your system, uh, paying, learning how to pay attention to balance uh, and learning how to pay attention to being respectful in your relationships. And then these healing practices we see in the San Bushman uh, for example, they are have been around for 150,000 years at least. We They carry the genes that we carry. So they are our ancestors uh, uh, and cousins now. Uh, they have almost daily practices uh, that allow them to dance and sing and allow them to let go of grudges, to let go of resentments, to let go of grief. And we have a lot of grief now. And we need to then figure out how to do those practices by community and also individually. And so um, the balance uh, for a healthy functioning person is to not think too much, but be more heart-centered, to follow your intuitions, to have developed your intuitions. Again, we undermine that in our the way we raise kids typically. Uh, so it's getting back to that and it's helping the gut to stay calm and not feel threatened. All that is a matter of balancing, and then also that, uh, so that's the inner part, but then there's the outer balance with relationships to make sure that you are being respectful, not only with humans, but with the other than humans around you, that you're not stomping on the spider that you meet, that you're not, uh, and maybe maybe you did accidentally kill a spider or an ant, uh, then that's the healing is to ask for forgiveness, to offer, make an offering, this is what Native Americans do when they take a life of a plant or an animal, they respond with a gift back. Nature is a gift economy. It gives us and then what we give back is even our waste is food for another animal, right? Um, And so that system of uh, reciprocity, of constant movement, of being in relationship is something we need to get back to, uh, which our society has kind of undermined.
0: I love it. I love that idea of just healing at the end of every day. That's something I'm going to have to work into our families. So let me ask, we've got all these processes. We've got the evolved nest. Can we consider it as universal? Because there's so many different environments in which we've evolved that I feel like that we might expect there to be variations in how this evolved nest looks or maybe components that fit here but not there. Is it something that you consider universal?
1: Yes. Yeah, so these components are, are the universal ones. They're going to be other things. And then how they manifest themselves are going to be different. You know, how babies are carried or uh, how children play and where they play and how what kind of all parents are around or all mothers. So there is a lot of variation. But the, they're, these are the fundamental components of our of what we know leads to a healthy, happy, cooperative human being.
0: I like that because it's true. I think it is important to remember that the presence of something like language is a universal. What that language is, how we speak, all the components to it is different. So it feels like it's one of those kind of universals, but with a lot of variation.
1: Right. I like that. That's good.
0: Um, So then on that, too, because we've talked a lot as part of the evolved nest of our history of a lot of indigenous cultures, because they are Our human history is indigenous culture that we've moved away from. And I think there's, I know there is concern over over generalizing to them, over idealizing them. And so part of that is the thought of them as wholly peaceful. Because we think about all these evolved nests, we think about a peaceful, supportive society. And we know, though, throughout history, there have been wars, there are times at which one indigenous culture has gone to war with another. There are some stories of of violence between them. So can you talk about the difference of these kind of within culture practices, as opposed to between culture practices and how it relates to the evolved nest?
1: Well, the anthropologists guide us here on um, making sure we distinguish types of societies so i've been talking about nomadic foragers small band hunter gatherers these are people with no possessions they're fiercely egalitarian meaning they don't allow anyone to coerce anyone else that's the grounds for breaking the relationship and just undignified you don't do that even with parents and children uh and they don't domesticate animals uh, or cultivate plants now that's this is their way of raising their children it's our 99 percent Once you get uh, uh, people who have more than others, like complex hunter-gatherers, where you cultivate plants, then you're going to have some people that have more stuff than others. Or if you uh, move into tribes where you have political alliances with uh, in-group and uh, out-group, these are different kinds of societies. And then there's the more uh, chiefdoms where someone uh, has power, more power than others, uh, and then states. In the small band hunter-gatherers, there's no power uh, that anyone has to force anyone else to do anything. And they have nothing to fight about, except once in a while there might be a jealous rage by a male, typically, but they do very little harm. It's the complex societies where things, uh, it's still hard with a complex hunter-gatherer where they're cultivating uh, manioc or something. They don't have power over others either. It's when you get to chiefdoms, and uh, that kind of level of complexity where someone can force you to be a soldier, to go into military combat. But in the uh, small band hunter-gatherers, there are uh, the uh, Batek of Malaysia were asked, well, why are you running away from these people who are you know, chasing you? Why don't you stand and fight? The response was, oh, but they might get hurt. So there's a different sense of relational uh, responsibility but once you start to get the inequality going, the hierarchy and stratification of society, people who are in higher positions become less empathic. We know that from the research. They, they think they deserve it. They think they're better. And that feeling of superiority then and they, the feeling of this is mine is going to lead them to war. And if you have the power to do it in these more complex societies, that's what the elites will do. So we have to remember that uh, books like Stephen Pinker's uh, Our Better Angels mixed up all the data. He uh, combined complex undergatherers with, with these simple foraging communities and chiefdoms and tribes, um, blended it all into the past and look how much more peaceful we are and all totally uh, misguiding us.
0: Thank you for that, because it is. There is such distinction between them. Kind of like we said, there's so many different environments. There is a distinction between small band hunter-gatherers and other complex and then eventually agricultural societies in which you have to defend your land because that's how you survive. And these things all play into this difference. I would also add to that, that I think even within that, I know I've read a lot that, um, Many of the complex hunter-gatherers in particular, and even many agricultural ones as well, were very peaceful within their community. That that within group was quite supportive. Children are at the center. They are nourished and they are grown. And struggles come when there is conflict over land um, animals, you know, if there's a, a, a drought or a famine, you may end up looking outwards and then encroaching on someone else's territory. But it, that doesn't mean that none of these things take place in there. It just means that they take place in the within culture as opposed to extending that olive branch across cultures as well.
1: Would, would you agree with that? Well, there are cultures who are um, peaceful within and without. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that you're going to be at war with others. So Scandinavian countries now tend to be pretty peaceful and promote peace around the world. Uh, Douglas Fry has written wonderful books on all of this. So I would urge people to go look him up.
0: Yeah. And I guess what I was just adding is that we can have it both within and between, but also we may just have it within. And I would argue that our culture probably doesn't have it within or between. Agreed. <laughs> Part of the problem is that we are missing it on both levels. And that also adds problems. So you've already given us so many steps as to how to get back as a society towards this cooperative companionship. Is there anything else you wanted to add there?
1: Yes. Uh, our, so uh, our recent movie, Breaking the Cycle, film.org. It's a place to see it, six minutes. It focused on the the big picture, the cycles, the two cycles. Our next movie that we're working on, another short one, five minutes, we presume, is going to be about the wellness-informed pathway that our cousins, uh, San Bushman, for example, and our ancestors followed. We forgot that, you know, in, and the Evolved Nest provides a pathway to wellness. Trauma-informed is great, but trauma-informed doesn't lead us to mend the systems to prevent trauma in the future, <clears throat> necessarily, it's uh, you know can be more of a band-aid approach. But a wellness-informed uh, approach in practice is actually acknowledging who we are, what our basic needs are as a species, as an individual, and how to support those basic needs. And all along the way through life, to have the supportive holding space uh, for uh, our best selves to emerge always. Right now, we puncture our uh, holding space in so many ways, for young children especially, but for all of us, and we are always off kilter. Now, it's very useful to the elites to keep us off kilter because they can maintain control uh, over the resources and keep absorbing them for their own purposes. But that's now led us to this ecological uh, disaster zone that we're in. The four four horsemen of the apocalypse, of the environmental apocalypse, are upon us. That's global burning, the global weirding of climate, the uh, degraded atmosphere, massive species extinction, and massive toxification of soil, water, and air. We are there. And so if we're not going to disappear as a species, and our uh, future descendants uh, disappear or not exist, and uh, all the other vertebrates on the planet, if we're not going to make all that disappear, we're going to have to shift. And we've got to shift back to what we call the indigenous worldview, and this is very different from the Western worldview, but much more common everywhere else, where we are part of a, a sacred uh, moral cosmos, that it's uh, everything's alive, everything's sentient. We are part of it, not superior to it, not separated from it, from it. But actually younger siblings of all these other entities like mosses have been around for 400 million years. We've only been around for 6 million perhaps. Uh, and so we need to get back to uh, ecocentrism to understand that we are uh, one of many creatures, that we are, um, have much to learn from everyone else, that relationships are the core of society, not individualism that heart-mindedness and its development is the way to be a human being. Uh, And all that needs to be done And we talk about those things that involve mass.org.
0: I love it. And I will have the link to Breaking the Cycle in the show notes. So you can just go down to link to it to see it. It's a great little video. It's wonderful. But I am happy to hear that the next one is more about bringing us forward because I think people need the concrete ideas to come out. We, for so long... When you aren't raised with that mindset, it's like trying to think outside a box that is very tightly wrapped because it is so hard to think, what can I do? And it feels overwhelming and I think at times helpless. So thank you for putting that together because we do need, we need a shift of of something. And But I do think it starts, if it's fair for me to say, I think it starts at home and there's so much even in the interim, you know, we think about... The ecological crisis and that can feel overwhelming because there's so much we can't do but we can raise our children in a way that they feel loved supported part of something and cared for and that that step by step that we take generation after generation is sometimes perhaps the most important it's you know when we look at intergenerational trauma we never say you're going to cure it all in one generation if it took us 10 generations to get here It's going to take us 10 generations to get us out.
1: That's right. And every adult can start with themselves. The wisdom traditions talk about the importance of your state. Uh, To be in wisdom, you have to have a state of love and not fear, Uh, not not ego investment, but being in that um, open relational space of uh, accepting the flow of life and to Maintain then that engaged, what I call engagement ethic of feeling like we are dancing in relationship with one another, with uh, whether it's a tree or an insect or a person or a river, that we are always in relationship and be now, learn how to be now in this present moment. Now, that takes some, for some people, it will bring up the traumas and the self blame and all that. Just let it pass by, like watching the uh, boats float by on the river and just say, oh, yeah, right. Bye. And, and get back to being here in your body now, paying attention to your body now and then paying attention to who you're with and opening the heart to connect.
0: I love it. Thank you. I'm ready to go give my kids a big hug and see what we're going to play outside. So thank you so much, Darsha, for being here. It is so lovely to see you again. And I am so thankful we were able to take time to go through this because this work is so important that you're doing right now. And I, I can't wait to see the next video. So I know I will get there's an email list too. So if you want, you can sign up and you will be notified when it comes out.
1: Yes. Thank you so much such a pleasure to be with you, Tracy, after seven years, we'll have to I do know. Again sooner. <laughs> sooner. Not seven
0: years. Far sooner than that. So thank you so much once again. And please, everyone, check out all the links in the show notes. You'll be able to access the Evolve Nest site, Breaking the Cycle Film, uh, Darsha's book, and everything else. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you can take some of the lessons from the Evolve Nest into your own lives. I promise you'll probably feel better for it, and your kids will thank you. Now join me next week as I delve into the topic of education, specifically Montessori education. What does it involve? What are the concepts that are different from our more modern education system, and why should that matter? I'm joined by John Freeman, a former Montessori principal and advocate for public Montessori. If you're at all wondering about alternatives in education, this conversation is one to listen to. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.